Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. First Timothy chapter 2, seven verses of Scripture, beginning with verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all those who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Amen. And this morning I'm simply going to continue on in the, uh, the pastoral epistle series in these first seven verses. Let's pray. Father, this morning your word is divinely inspired. There is no other book like this book. There is no other God like you. And so we approach this text this morning uh, with reverence, and we simply ask you that while Paul wrote this to Timothy 2,000 years ago, there is so much that is relevant here for us today. And we ask you this morning that you would open up our understanding, help us to receive your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Looking this morning at Paul's words in the first verse, Paul says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Paul is saying, I want you to pray for everybody. I want you to be thankful for everybody. I want you to intercede for all people. You don't need a Greek dictionary to understand what the word all means. It's going to tell you what you already know. Everybody, excluding no one, all people. This includes people that you don't like. This includes people that may gossip about you, people who abuse you. People, 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 all of them, Paul said. Timothy You pray for all people. It's easy to pray for all the people you love. Think about what most of your prayers are. Most of your prayers are probably for people that you care about. You're going to pray for your family. You're going to pray for close friends. That's easy. That's natural. It's easy for us to be good to people who are good back to us. And he said, give thanksgiving for all people. That's hard. That's hard for us to say, God, thank you for so-and-so who is such a pain in my neck, who has caused me grief, who has slighted me, abused me. But Paul said, give thanksgiving for all people. Paul is echoing the sentiment that we hear from Jesus when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. It is hard 
to be bitter against somebody that you're praying for. It's hard to have bitterness in your heart and at the same time pray for them. The best piece of gospel-centered exhortation we could give this morning is that if you're dealing with bitterness against someone, pray for that person. Pray for that person that you have ought against, that you have something in your heart that is just, there's a resentment, there's a contempt, there's bitterness. Try praying for that person. You don't want, you're not going to want to pray. You're going to grit your teeth as you're saying, Lord, bless them, bless them with, you know, don't, don't insert something bad there. You know, bless them with the lightning bolt. No, it's like, <laughs> bless them. You know, God cursed people in the Old Testament. I believe it was the Philistines, and there's a word there um, that he cursed them with. And you're like, I don't know what that word means. Well, if you research it out, it's hemorrhoids. Like, God cursed people, gave the, the Philistines, he inflicted them with this. Um, and I, it's like, it, it's easy to pray things against people. Uh, at times, but no, I'm saying pray for them. Pray that God would open up their heart. Pray that God would break up that, that hard ground. Don't pray that they get hit by a bus. Pray God's will into their lives. Pray God's peace in their lives. Pray that God's redemptive purposes would be accomplished in that person's life. That's hard, but that's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's easy to love people who love you, but it's Christ-like to love people like that. Now that seems easy and obvious on the surface to be Christ-like. We know that that's the heart of Christ. But when was the last time that you and I prayed for and insert any person or group that we despise, that we have contempt for? We could hate their teachings, and we should, but we should pray that God save them. We should pray that God open people to the air of their ways and let the gospel penetrate their heart and fill them with the love of Christ. And that seems very foreign to us because on the surface that's not what we are inclined to do, but that is the sentiment of Scripture, is to pray for all people. The people that do you wrong, can you pray for them? Verse 2. Paul says, he's continuing in the vein of prayer and supplications and thanksgivings. He says, do this for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So when he says pray for kings, high positions, he's speaking about political power. Those who are in rule of the day. Now, I'm glad, I'm grateful that we live in a democracy. But the kingdom of God would advance just fine without it. And has for most of history. Democracy is not our savior. Capitalism is not our savior. And it can become an idol. The Republican Party is not our Savior. The Democratic Party is not our hope. We are not waiting on anybody and any political authority to align with kingdom purposes. Now, I'm a constitutionalist. I keep a copy of it on my bookshelf. I respect it. Uh, I, I believe it. I think it's an incredible document. But the freedoms that are guaranteed in the Constitution, they are temporary and they are often violated. 
the freedom that comes with being a citizen of heaven is guaranteed and that freedom cannot be violated. No man, no government, no institution can take away the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. They can arrest us. They can persecute us like they did the Apostle Paul. They cannot take away the freedom that we have in Christ. The state, the government, has a great deal of control over how people spread the gospel. I didn't say if they spread the gospel, but how they spread the gospel, the the state has a massive amount of control over that. I didn't say the state has control over the effectiveness of the gospel but it can influence and control how churches operate. You don't only have to look no further than China or many Arab nations to see that Christianity does not operate because of the the government influence, the oversight, the mandates. Uh, Much of it is done underground. If we were in some nations today, we could not meet like this. I mean, we are We are in a facility, we are in a place that we could not meet in some nations. We would be doing it underground. We would be doing it in houses, in secret, in private. There would be no advertising a church service. So yes, the state can change how people live day in and day out. But Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. You do not expect the words that come after you're going to be persecuted, you're going to suffer, you're going to be accused falsely because of Christ. The next words that you expect out of the mouth of Jesus is not rejoice. But that's what he says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. In many cultures and societies and in most of church history, to be a Christian put you at odds with the state. Sometimes it resulted in harassment and other times death. Jesus said in Luke 21, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to, to the synagogues and the prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Like we're, look, we're looking for a way to witness Jesus said, here's an opportunity for you to witness. Go get arrested for the gospel's sake. Stand before magistrates and judges and plead your case and be a witness in a court of law. Jesus did that. Paul did that. Paul has an audience with Roman leadership, but he has it in stocks and bonds. Like Stocks and bonds did not represent, that, that didn't bring to mind in Paul's head an investment portfolio. Stocks and bonds were what he walked in. It was the reality of his life. And it brought him to high places to be a witness. Paul lived out the words that Jesus said, this will happen to you. And Jesus said, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand on how to even answer. He said, I will give you a mouth of wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated all by all for my name's sake. And he says this, but not a hair on your head will perish 
wait a minute, Jesus. Not even a hair on my head is going to perish. And you just said, I will be delivered up. I could be killed for the gospel's sake. And then he says, not even a hair on your head will perish. Why? Because they might kill you, but they cannot harm you. You have an eternal reward. The writer of Hebrews says, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you were in, endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. There's a phrase here in verse 34, For you had compassion on those in prisons, and you joyfully accepted, here's the praise, the phrase, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Whoever the writer of Hebrews is, is saying, these people came in, you were persecuted, they plundered your property and it didn't bother you because you had a better possession, a better property in the heavens and an abiding one, and an enduring one. I want you to see, I'm saying all of this because Paul is writing to Timothy in a very hedonistic, heathenistic city that reflects much of our culture. I want you to see the state of the early church. So some observations from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Number one, we are citizens of the kingdom of God before we are citizens of the United States of America. There is not an American flag flying next to God's throne. We are not God's chosen people because we are Americans. God makes no distinction. The only distinction we see in Scripture among ethnic race, there's Jews and there's Gentiles, there's everybody else. We are Gentiles. We do not hold favor with God because we live in this nation. There is a fine line between patriotism and nationalism. The believer in Botswana and the Christ follower in Iran are more your fellow patriot than the unrepentant man or woman waving their flag next to you at the 4th of July fireworks. Now, I am not teaching that the church should not get involved in issues and take a stand and be active in doing what it can do to combat wicked ideas. I mean, there are tens of millions of evangelical Christians in the United States. There is definitely power in that number to be able to make a stand. I think we're seeing it right now happen in some areas, and I fully support that. I think the church should get involved where the church can get involved. But neither can we legislate morality or use power plays to change the world. It is only the persuasion of the gospel that produces true inward lasting change in the hearts and lives of people. There is coming a day in the age to come at the second return of Christ that the kingdoms of this world will be subjected to Christ and His kingdom. But until then, we should not be surprised at the things we see. And I would caution all of us against Christian nationalism that lives as though both ideas, Christianity and being part of any nation, are equal and operate as though both ideas are intertwined and cannot be separated. The church that Peter was writing to in 1 Peter 
was under persecution. This is the, the whole backdrop of the book of 1 Peter. He is writing to people who are under immense persecution because of their faith. And he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. That's what he's trying to get in their head. You are sojourners and you are exiles. You are not made for this world any longer. You have an allegiance to Christ that puts you at odds with any system in this world that is not in allegiance with Christ. It should come as no surprise to us when we get kickback and, and we get pushback and we get opposition. That is to be expected because the values don't align. The principles, the priorities do not align with those who are not in Christ. John Piper writes, When we testify as Christians to other Americans, we are not calling them to make America great. We are advocating for a transfer of citizenship, an eternal one. When we are witnessing to people, we are appealing them to transfer your citizenship to a heavenly allegiance, a heavenly alliance, a brand new identity that unless you are in Christ, you cannot understand. Number two, we are to be submitted to the state and the laws of the land to the extent that our submission does not violate the Word of God. If you must choose... If it is to a point where you must choose, then we must take the position and the posture of the apostles in Acts chapter 4 when they are forced to choose between allegiance to Christ and allegiance to the state. And their answer was, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But for us, we cannot help but to speak of what we have seen and heard we must obey God rather than men. If the choice is between obeying the state and obeying Christ, and the two are not in alignment, we must obey Christ, even if it means our imprisonment. That's, a hard, that's an easy thing to say, maybe a hard thing to do. But if our nation continues down the path that it's continuing down at a rapid rate, there may be times where we are forced to make those choices. There may be times when some of us sit in a jail cell because of what we believe. Are we prepared for that? Are we aware? Are we even aware that that's even a possibility? Number three, God is totally sovereign, and here's our hope, God is totally sovereign in the affairs of this world. The rulers of this world are puppets and pawns in God's hand. God is truly in control. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Psalm 46, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among all the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God is in control. The Bible says... The king's heart 
is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and He turns it wherever He will. Think about that picture. The king's heart is a stream of water, and God is just directing it wherever it, it goes. Many are the plans of the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will be established. I don't care what the plans of men and women are for this world, for this society. God has a plan and a will, and it will be brought to pass. Daniel 4, I remember reading this as a kid in a kind of a comic strip Bible so I can see this animated in my head of this story, but it's the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. And the Bible says that at the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? What's he doing? He's taking credit. He's exalting himself. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven and said, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you will be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom He will." And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. The king becomes exalted in himself, and God says, I know how to fix that. I can make kings live like animals it's exactly what he does. Now, God did restore Nebuchadnezzar, but God showed the nations, I can make a king live like an animal if I want to. I'm in control. Like That's the words of God in this chapter. God is in ultimate control. This is why, circling back to the words of Paul, we pray for kings who are in high positions. We pray that, so that word that, There's an effect, there's a cause, an effect, the cause is the prayer. The effect is we're going to live a godly and dignified life in every way. Paul expects for government officials to affect your life according to how you pray for them. That's the sentiment of that verse. And how often do we do that? How often, I mean, we we hear constant, constant criticism. I listen. I don't listen to talk radio. I don't watch Talking Heads uh, about politics, just because nothing's get, nothing gets done. People get stuff off their chest. And it's like we're not. There's no progress ma- being made here. And sit around the table and pound and accuse, and nothing is getting done from this. And I just don't have time for that. But all of the criticism being leveled, even by the church, against certain factions. When's the last time you heard a religious leader say, let's pray for the president. Let's pray for Congress. Let's pray for your mayors, for those. When's the last time you, I mean, I'm not saying it never happens, but it's a whole lot more criticism being leveled than there is calls for prayer. But this is what Paul's saying. And Paul's saying this against the backdrop of a very 
wicked, anti-Christian environment. Jeremiah said, seek the welfare of the city. This verse is used a lot in church planting. You go to a church planting conference, you'll probably hear this verse. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, what welfare? The welfare of your city. We seek the welfare of our city. This isn't symbolic of anything. He's talking about the the place you live. We seek the betterment of the area we live in. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As your city goes, so goes you and your family. And you can affect the world affairs through your prayers. Lord, let your will be done. You can send your prayers for the nations to the throne room of God. God will mix your faith with His power and bend like a satellite from the throne of heaven. Bend those prayers back down into places, into places of power. Bend those prayers back down into places of authority. And you can affect the course of your world through your prayers. And if that seems fanciful or too far out for your liking, then God help us to have a reality check on how God works through His people. The man that sits in the Oval Office today, are we going to pray for him? Are we going to ask that God would guide him and order his steps and not do what's necessarily economically best for a nation, but God, let your redemptive purposes be fulfilled in our nation? Because the way that God does that through offices like that is going to be totally different than what we expect. It may, it may be judgment. It very well might be judgment. But in the end, God's redemptive purpose will be fulfilled. Verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So I'm going to split those verses, talk about verse 5, and I'll circle back at the end at verse 6. There is only one God, meaning that no one else and nothing else can be God. There's only room for one. A friend of mine is fond of saying, there's only one God and I'm not Him. It's like the first thing you need to know. There is only one God and it's not me. The first The book of 1 Timothy is a letter, so Paul sits down, pens a letter by by Paul to Timothy, where Timothy is the pastoral overseer of the churches. So it's not one big church in Ephesus that gathers together, it's a series of house churches, this is how they did it, but Timothy is the overseer of the churches in Ephesus. We maybe call him a bishop. In Ephesus, there is a temple dedicated to the goddess Diana or Artemis. So the Greek goddess is Artemis. And if you get into Roman culture, the Romans said, uh, we have Diana. And by the first century, by the time we get to this text, Artemis from the Greeks and Diana from the Romans were this one and the same. They kind of merged together. And now we know her as Diana. How many have ever heard of Wonder Woman? Okay, you know who Wonder Woman is? Wonder Woman is in the Bible. This is her. If you know anything about Wonder Woman, you know her name is Diana. You know that she is a goddess. You go back into the 
I don't know if it was DC Comics or whatever. I know she started in the 1940s as a comic strip, but Diana, Wonder Woman, Diana didn't start in the 1940s. The whole character is derived from this goddess, this Roman goddess named Diana. That's why her name is Princess Diana, who becomes Wonder Woman. In our culture, it's a comic book character. For the city of Ephesus, Diana was the religion of the city. They had a temple in Ephesus that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It had 127 columns that were 60 feet tall. Now, that's, that's an architectural and construction feat today. But think about back then. They had no, no electric earth movers. They had no, um, no power tools. They constructed 127 ornate columns, 60 feet tall in this temple. There were silversmiths in the city that would make these little Diana statues and they would sell them. It was a big industry. And it was all going well until this preacher named Paul shows up in Ephesus. And all this story is in the book of Acts. Paul finds some of John, John the Baptist's disciples, and the first question he asks them, he says, Have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And then he asked them if they had been baptized. And they said, We haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. And so we've been baptized, but we were baptized under John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. So Paul's answer in Acts 19, he said, Well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. Ephesus started having a revival. And God was doing, verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul's out there, he's casting out devils, he's laying hands on people. I mean, this is all starting and uh, there's, there's these seven sons of Siva in Ephesus. And the seven sons of Siva see what Paul's doing. And they see he's doing it in the name of Jesus. And they said, it's a neat trick, I'll try that too. So they go to this demon-possessed person and they said, I adjure you by Jesus Christ that Paul preaches to come out. And the demons speak back to the seven sons of Siva and they said, Jesus we know, we know who Paul is, but who are you? And they proceed, the, the demon-possessed man proceeds to attack these seven sons of Siva and rips all their clothes off until they're naked. And they go running out, seven sons of Siva go running out naked and hurt. It's, it's in the Bible, it's in Acts 19. And why? Why? It's because the name of Jesus is not a magic word. It's not like abracadabra. The random person can't go out there and just start commandeering the name of Jesus and getting things done. The power that came that Paul had in the name of Jesus was that Paul knew Jesus. He had the Spirit of Christ in him. That's what made the difference. So the demons knew who Paul was because he had the relationship. He was, he was in Christ. He was a representative of Christ. The seven sons of Siva just thought it was a, a neat parlor trick. It was this magic word. This is what's going on in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a fairly large city, but 
that gets around pretty fast. I mean, if that happened today in, in this area, without media, word would get around still. It's like, did you hear about those seven guys and the one guy and seven guys ran out in the street naked? And that would get around pretty fast. And it was this event that became known to all the residents of Ephesus and great fear fell upon them that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was glorified. The people in the city that were practicing sorcery and witchcraft came to Christ and they have a book burning. They bring all of their sorcery and witchcraft books, which the fact that that was so prevalent in the city points to the seven sons of Siva, why they may have thought that they could do this, because it's like sorcery and witchcraft is a big thing in this city. They bring all of their witchcraft magic books. The Bible says the value of those books that were burned was 50,000 pieces of silver. It's roughly $5 million in assets that they burn. That's going to get people's attention. Demetrius is a silversmith in the city. He's making idols, and now the idol sales are tanking. And that's a problem. You're taking away my living. So he leads a group into the theater of Ephesus, and the people begin to chant, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And they chant that phrase for two hours in the temple. Imagine what happens when it becomes a mob mentality becomes rhythmic. They just begin chanting and they're just whipped up into this fury. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Now in much of the world, throughout much of world history, idolatry came in the form of physical idols that were to be worshipped. Little trinkets, things that you could buy that you would look at and worship. For the most part in our culture, this is not the case, but we do have our own American idols. And if anyone or anything is set in the place that only God can occupy as God, it doesn't make it God, it makes it an idol. That sin of idolatry is alive and well. It was John Calvin who, one of his most famous quotes, was that the heart is a perpetual idol factory. Like, out of us just constantly comes idols. We conjure things, we produce things, we manufacture idols out of our own heart to place instead of God. My nature is constantly elevating things in my life to a point of worship. Anything the heart can do to get your mind off of Christ. And anything that is elevated to a point of worship is an idol that must be cast down. And anything that is elevated to the point of a redemptive power is an idol. Money, entertainment, exercise, your career, they can all be elevated to a point where you say, that's where I get my redemption. That's where I get my identity. And it becomes an idol. We have to constantly, regularly examine our lives, our hearts, and say, what is it in my life that I am elevating to a place above God? Even for believers, we constantly battle like what religion itself can become an idol in place of the person of Christ. Everything must draw us to a place of worship. The last verse, and I close with this. Paul says there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Verse 6 who gave himself as a ransom for us all. So you've heard me say a lot lately that 
no matter where you read in Paul, doesn't matter, where you read in Paul, Paul is constantly circling back to the gospel. It's like he has one main road he's going down. He takes some exits to talk about some other things, but he doesn't veer too far off. He constantly, quickly circles back to the main road. It's like you just cannot read Paul without him bringing all the conversation back. It doesn't matter if it's even out of place. Sometimes you read these things and you're like, Paul, that doesn't really flow with what you're saying. Paul's like, I don't care. I have to get you back to the heart of the gospel. And he's going to say it a hundred different ways throughout his writings, but he's really saying the same thing. Christ gave himself as a ransom for us all. The message of the gospel is in this verse. Jesus gave himself as a ransom. And that's why Jesus himself must be elevated in our hearts, in our minds, 24-7, to a place where he is the only one that holds the supremacy in the throne of your life. And everything else finds its place underneath Christ. We wouldn't dream today of going out and buying a statue and sitting it on our mantle and worshiping the statue. We wouldn't dream of driving 10 minutes away to the big yard in Saxe that has the 100 plus Buddhas sitting in, sitting in the front yard. I always wonder how many they sell because you can't tell because if somebody came and bought one today, they'd replace it. Like you can't tell what, what the turn is, but it's been there as long as I've lived here, so I imagine somebody somewhere is buying lots of those statues. Um, I also imagine they have a corner on the market. Like, I don't know where another one's at. Like, if I needed a Buddha statue today, I know where to go. It's not like, do I go here, do I go over here? I know, you know, tell all your friends and neighbors. None of us are going there today. I'm confident of that. But what we will battle is other things in our life that we say, you know what? That has its tendency, as Calvin said, to the heart just within me can take anything that is even good. I have seen people take good things. I have seen people elevate sports so much in their life. People that couldn't throw a ball 20 feet, but they idolized sports to the point where that was their identity. That's just like who they were. It's like, there's nothing wrong with playing sports. There's nothing wrong with going to a game or watching a game. But it's just, they, they took that and it elevated to where that was the centrality of their life. We can do that with career. We can do that with really anything that's not God. Anything that's not God can be elevated to that point. I have seen people do this with preachers. I have seen people, you know, a few celebrity preachers. And I've seen people to where if you get in a conversation with them, they're going to talk about that preacher pretty fast. It's like, don't elevate anything above God. I'm fallible. Every man, every woman's fallible. Everything else in life is temporary. God is eternal. My life in Christ is eternal. And that is our hope. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, this morning is that city that hundreds of thousands of people that today sits in ruins on the other side of the world, just a tourist attraction that once was the center of idolatry in the world. That city today is in ruins, but your name and your word still stands and endures forever. That Lord, today that we're going to 
practice what we preach this morning and pray for leaders in high places, people that have hard decisions to make. It's easy for us to sit back and criticize, but Lord, we do ask that even if their mind is not toward you, even if you are not in their worldview, Lord, that you would touch them this morning, that you would get a hold of their heart and their thinking, that you would grant them wisdom. I pray this morning, most of all, that the affairs of this world and this nation uh, would be conducive for your redemptive purposes so that men and women could see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Our nation is in dire and desperate need of revival. Our nation is in need of revival. Lord, when only a few years ago preachers could pack out a sports arena and thousands and tens of thousands of people would attend and today that's just unheard of that our nation has become increasingly secular without you and their worldview. And so Lord, we see and know that we cannot bring about a revival. A true revival is a sovereign work of God. But Lord, you've done it. You've done it throughout history. You've had great awakenings throughout the world. And even in this nation, there has been great awakenings. And the only thing that we know to do is to be a church and to bind together with other churches and plead with you, Lord, send another awakening that people's eyes would be opened, Lord, that their minds, which are blind to the glory of Christ, that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Lord, that you would do and grant the miracle of sight. Lord, that you would open up people's understanding. Lord, and that you would, even in this city, Lord, the people who are lost and dying and hurting and, and don't know where to turn and don't know where to go. And they are so familiar with religion and Christianity in America. And they have been so disappointed by it. And they have seen so many times that it is rendered, Lord, impotent because of even churches that do not cherish and grasp your glory. We ask you this morning, Lord, that we would be a people that would not be guilty of that, but that we would stand in awe of your glory. We would stand in awe of your sovereignty. Lord, and that you would do the miraculous, do what only you can do, bring an awakening. And Lord, for those people who have been appointed and counted for us to reach and minister to, that you would grant us enough sensitivity to the Holy Spirit that we, when we encounter these people, that we would have those words to say, Lord, to speak wisdom, to speak life, to speak light to them, so that they too could be transformed through the power of the gospel. We ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you this morning as they come forward. We're closing song.